Book Seven, Chapter One of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Seven, Chapter One. Torture of Guatemozin, Submission of the Country, Rebuilding of the Capital, Mission to Castile, Complaints against Cortes, He is Confirmed in His Authority. The history of the conquest of Mexico terminates with the surrender of the capital. But the history of the conquest is so intimately blended with that of the extraordinary man who achieved it, that there would seem to be an incompleteness in the narrative, if it were not continued to the close of his personal career. The first ebullition of triumph was succeeded in the army by very different feelings, as they beheld the scanty spoil gleaned from the conquered city, and as they brooded over the inadequate compensation they were to receive for all their toils and sufferings. Some of the soldiers of Narvaez, with feelings of bitter disappointment, absolutely declined to accept their shares. Some murmured audibly against the general, and others against Guatemozin, who, they said, could reveal, if he chose, the place where the treasures were secreted. The white walls of the barracks were covered with epigrams and pasquinades leveled at Cortes, whom they accused of taking one-fifth of the booty as commander-in-chief and another-fifth as king. As Guatemozin refused to make any revelation in respect to the treasure, or rather declared there was none to take, the soldiers loudly insisted on his being put to the torture. But for this act of violence, so contrary to the promise of protection recently made to the Indian prince, Cortes was not prepared, and he resisted the demand, until the men, instigated, it is said, by the royal treasurer, Alderete, accused the general of a secret understanding with Guatemozin, and of a design to defraud the Spanish sovereigns and themselves. These unmerited taunts stung Cortes to the quick, and in an evil hour he delivered the Aztec prince into the hands of these enemies to work their pleasure on him. But the hero who had braved death in its most awful forms was not to be intimidated by bodily suffering. When his companion, the cacique of Tacuba, who was put to the torture with him, testified his anguish by his groans, Guatemozin coldly rebuked him by exclaiming, And do you think I, then, am taking my pleasure in my bath? At length Cortes, ashamed of the base part he was led to play, rescued the Aztec prince from his tormentors before it was too late. Not, however, before it was too late for his own honour, which has suffered an indelible stain from this treatment of his royal prisoner. All that could be wrung from Guatemozin by the extremity of his sufferings was the confession that much gold had been thrown into the water. But although the best divers were employed, under the eye of Cortes himself, to search the oozy bed of the lake, only a few articles of inconsiderable value were drawn from it. They had better fortune in searching a pond in Guatemozin's garden, where a sun, as it is called, probably one of the Aztec calendar-wheels, made of pure gold, of great size and thickness, was discovered. The tidings of the fall of Mexico were borne on the wings of the wind over the plateau and down the broad sides of the Cordilleras. Many an envoy made his appearance from the remote Indian tribes, anxious to learn the truth of the astounding intelligence and to gaze with their own eyes on the ruins of the detested city. Among these were ambassadors from the kingdom of Mechuacan, a powerful and independent state, inhabited by one of the kindred Nahuatlac races, and lying between the Mexican valley and the Pacific. 
His example was followed by ambassadors from the remote regions which had never yet had intercourse with the Spaniards. Cortes, who saw the boundaries of his empire thus rapidly enlarging, availed himself of the favorable dispositions of the natives to ascertain the products and resources of their several countries. Two small detachments were sent into the friendly state of Mechuacan, through which country they penetrated to the borders of the great southern ocean. No European had as yet descended on its shores so far north of the equator. The Spaniards eagerly advanced into its waters, erected a cross on the sandy margin, and took possession of it, with all the usual formalities, in the name of their most Catholic majesties. On their return they visited some of the rich districts toward the north, since celebrated for their mineral treasures, and brought back samples of gold and Californian pearls, with an account of their discovery of the ocean. The imagination of Cortez was kindled, and his soul swelled with exultation at the splendid prospects which their discoveries unfolded. Most of all, he writes to the emperor, do I exult in the tidings brought me of the great ocean. For in it, as cosmographers, and those learned men who know most about the Indies inform us, are scattered the rich isles teeming with gold and spices and precious stones. He at once sought a favorable spot for a colony on the shores of the Pacific, and made arrangements for the construction of four vessels to explore the mysteries of these unknown seas. This was the beginning of his noble enterprises for discovery in the Gulf of California. Although the greater part of Anahuac, overawed by the successes of the Spaniards, had tendered their allegiance, there were some, especially on the southern slopes of the Cordilleras, who showed a less submissive disposition. Cortes instantly sent out strong detachments under Sandoval and Alvarado to reduce the enemy and establish colonies in the conquered provinces. The highly colored reports which Alvarado, who had a quick scent for gold, gave of the mineral wealth of Waxaca, no doubt operated with Cortes in determining him to select this region for his own particular domain. Cortes did not immediately decide in what quarter of the valley to establish the new capital which was to take the place of the ancient Tenochtitlan. The situation of the latter, surrounded by water and exposed to occasional inundations, had some obvious disadvantages but there was no doubt that in some part of the elevated and central plateau of the valley the new metropolis should be built, to which both European and Indian might look up as to the head of the colonial empire of Spain. At length he decided on retaining the site of the ancient city, moved to it, as he says, by its past renown and the memory, not an enviable one, surely, in which it was held among the nations, and he made preparations for the reconstruction of the capital, which should, in his own language, raise her to the rank of queen of the surrounding provinces in the same manner as she had been of yore. The labor was to be performed by the Indian population, drawn from all quarters of the valley, and including the Mexicans themselves, great numbers of whom still lingered in the neighborhood of their ancient residence. At first they showed reluctance, and even symptoms of hostility, when called to this work of humiliation by their conquerors but Cortes had the address to secure some of the principal chiefs in his interest, and under their authority and direction the labor of their countrymen was conducted. The deep groves of the valley and the forests of the neighboring hills supplied cedar, cypress, and other durable woods for the interior of the buildings, and the quarries of Tetzontli and the ruins of the ancient edifices furnished abundance of stone. As there were no beasts of draft employed with the Aztecs, an immense number of hands was necessarily required for the work. All within the immediate control of Cortes were pressed into the service. The spot so recently deserted now swarmed with multitudes of Indians of various tribes, and with Europeans, the latter directing while the others labored. 
the prophecy of the Aztecs was accomplished, the work of reconstruction went forward rapidly. Yet the condition of Cortez, notwithstanding the success of his arms, suggested many causes of anxiety. He had not received a word of encouragement from home, not a word, indeed, of encouragement or censure. In what light his irregular course was regarded by the government or the nation was still matter of painful uncertainty. He now prepared another letter to the emperor, the third in the published series, written in the same simple and energetic style which has entitled his commentaries, as they may be called, to a comparison with those of Caesar. It was dated at Cohuacan, 15th of May, 1522, and in it he recapitulated the events of the final siege of the capital and his subsequent operations, accompanied by many sagacious reflections, as usual, on the character and resources of the country. With this letter he purposed to send the royal fifth of the spoils of Mexico, and a rich collection of fabrics, especially of gold and jewellery, wrought into many rare and fanciful forms. One of the jewels was an emerald, cut in a pyramidal shape, of so extraordinary a size, that the base was as broad as the palm of the hand. The collection was still further augmented by specimens of many of the natural products, as well as of animals peculiar to the country. The army wrote a letter to accompany that of Cortez, in which they expatiated on his manifold services, and besought the emperor to ratify his proceedings, and confirm him in his present authority. The important mission was entrusted to two of the general's confidential officers, Quinones and Avila. It proved to be unfortunate. The agents touched at the Azores, where Quinones lost his life in a brawl. Avila, resuming his voyage, was captured by a French privateer, and the rich spoils of the Aztecs went into the treasury of his most Christian majesty. Francis I gazed with pardonable envy on the treasures which his imperial rival drew from his colonial domains, and he intimated his discontent by peevishly expressing a desire to see the clause in Adam's testament which entitled his brothers of Castile and Portugal to divide the new world between them. Avila found means, through a private hand, of transmitting his letters, the most important part of his charge, to Spain, where they reached the court in safety. While these events were passing, affairs in Spain had taken an unfavorable turn for Cortes. It may seem strange that the brilliant exploits of the conqueror of Mexico should have attracted so little notice from the government at home. But the country was at that time distracted by the dismal feuds of the Comunidades. The sovereign was in Germany too much engrossed by the cares of the empire, to allow leisure for those of his own kingdom. The reins of government were in the hands of Adrian, Charles's preceptor, a man whose ascetic and studious habits better qualified him to preside over a college of monks than to fill, as he successively did, the most important posts in Christendom, first as regent of Castile, afterwards as head of the church. Yet the slow and hesitating Adrian could not have so long passed over in silence the important services of Cortes, but for the hostile interference of Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, sustained by Fonseca, bishop of Burgos, the chief person in the Spanish colonial department. This prelate, from his elevated station, possessed paramount authority in all matters relating to the Indies, and he had exerted it from the first, as we have already seen, in a manner most prejudicial to the interests of Cortes. He had now the address to obtain a warrant from the regent, which was designed to ruin the conqueror at the very moment when his great enterprise had been crowned with success. The instrument, after recapitulating the offences of Cortes in regard to Velasquez, appoints a commissioner with full powers to visit the country, to institute an inquiry into the general's conduct, to suspend him from his functions, and even to seize his person and sequestrate his property until the pleasure of the Castilian court could be known. 
The warrant was signed by Adrian at Burgos on the 11th of April, 1521, and countersigned by Fonseca. The individual selected for the delicate task of apprehending Cortez and bringing him to trial, on the theatre of his own discoveries and in the heart of his own camp, was named Cristobal de Tapia, Vidor, or inspector of the gold foundries in St. Domingo. He was a feeble, vacillating man, as little competent to cope with Cortez in civil matters as Narvaez had shown himself to be in military. The commissioner, clothed in his brief authority, landed in December at Villarica, but he was coldly received by the magistrates of the city. His credentials were disputed on the ground of some technical informality. It was objected, moreover, that his commission was founded on obvious misrepresentations to the government, and notwithstanding a most courteous and complimentary epistle which he received from Cortez, congratulating him, as an old friend, on his arrival, the Vidor soon found that he was neither to be permitted to penetrate far into the country, nor to exercise any control there. He loved money, and, as Cortez knew the weak side of his old friend, he proposed to purchase his horses, slaves, and equipage at a tempting price. The dreams of disappointed ambition were gradually succeeded by those of avarice, and the discomfited commissioner consented to re-embark for Cuba, well freighted with gold, if not with glory. Thus left in undisputed possession of authority, the Spanish commander went forward with vigor in his plans for the settlement of his conquests. The Panuquese, a fierce people on the borders of the Panuco, on the Atlantic coast, had taken up arms against the Spaniards. Cortes marched at the head of a considerable force into their country, defeated them in two pitched battles, and after a severe campaign, reduced the warlike tribe to subjection. During this interval, the great question in respect to Cortes and the colony had been brought to a decisive issue. The general must have succumbed under the insidious and implacable attacks of his enemies, but for the sturdy opposition of a few powerful friends zealously devoted to his interests. Among them may be mentioned his own father, Don Martin Cortez, a discreet and efficient person, and the Duc de Bejar, a powerful nobleman, whom, who from an early period had warmly espoused the cause of Cortez. By their representations the timid regent was at length convinced that the measures of Fonseca were prejudicial to the interests of the crown, and an order was issued interdicting him from further interference in any matters in which Cortez was concerned. While the exasperated prelate was chafing under this affront, both the commissioners Tapia and Narvaez arrived in Castile. The latter had been ordered to Cohuacan after the surrender of the capital, where his cringing demeanor formed a striking contrast to the swaggering port which he had assumed on first entering the country. When brought into the presence of Cortez, he knelt down and would have kissed his hand, but the latter raised him from the ground, and during his residence in his quarters treated him with every mark of respect. The general soon afterwards permitted his unfortunate rival to return to Spain, where he proved, as might have been anticipated, a most bitter and implacable enemy. These two personages, reinforced by the discontented prelate, brought forward their several charges against Cortes with all the acrimony which mortified vanity and the thirst of vengeance could inspire. Adrian was no longer in Spain, having been called to the chair of St. Peter, but Charles V, after his long absence, had returned to his dominions in July 1522. The royal ear was instantly assailed with accusations of Cortes on the one hand and his vindication on the other, till the young monarch, perplexed and unable to decide on the merits of the question, referred the whole subject to the decision of a board selected for the purpose. It was drawn partly from the members of his privy council and partly from the Indian department, 
with the Grand Chancellor of Naples as its president, and constituted altogether a tribunal of the highest respectability for integrity and wisdom. By this learned body a patient and temperate hearing was given to the parties. The enemies of Cortes accused him of having seized and finally destroyed the fleet entrusted to him by Velasquez, and fitted out at the governor's expense, of having afterwards usurped powers in contempt of the royal prerogative, of the unjustifiable treatment of Narvaez and Tapia, when they had been lawfully commissioned to supersede him, of cruelty to the natives, and especially to Guatemozin, of embezzling the royal treasures, and remitting but a small part of its dues to the crown, of squandering the revenues of the conquered countries in useless and wasteful schemes, and particularly in rebuilding the capital on a plan of unprecedented extravagance, of pursuing, in short, a system of violence and extortion without respect to the public interest or any other end than his own selfish aggrandizement. In answer to these grave charges the friends of Cortes adduced evidence to show that he had defrayed with his own funds two-thirds of the cost of the expedition. The powers of Velasquez extended only to traffic, not to establish a colony, yet the interests of the crown required the latter. The army had therefore necessarily assumed this power to themselves, but having done so, they had sent intelligence of their proceedings to the emperor, and solicited his confirmation of them. The rupture with Narvaez was that commander's own fault, since Cortes would have met him amicably, had not the violent measures of his rival, threatening the ruin of the expedition, compelled him to an opposite course. The treatment of Tapia was vindicated on the grounds alleged to that officer by the municipality of Sampoala. The violence to Guatemozin was laid at the door of Alderete, the royal treasurer, who had instigated the soldiers to demand it. The remittances to the crown, it was clearly proved, so far from falling short of the legitimate fifth, had considerably exceeded it. If the general had expended the revenues of the country on costly enterprises and public works, it was for the interests of the country that he did so, and he had incurred a heavy debt by straining his own credit to the utmost for the same great objects. Neither did they deny that in the same spirit he was now rebuilding Mexico on a scale which should be suited to the metropolis of a vast and opulent empire. They enlarged on the opposition he had experienced throughout his whole career from the governor of Cuba, and still more from the bishop of Burgos, which latter functionary, instead of affording him the aid to have been expected, had discouraged recruits, stopped his supplies, sequestered such property as from time to time he had sent to Spain, and falsely represented his remittances to the crown, as coming from the governor of Cuba. In short, such and so numerous were the obstacles thrown in his path, that Cortes had been heard to say he had found it more difficult to contend against his own countrymen than against the Aztecs. They concluded with expatiating on the brilliant results of his expedition, and asked if the council were prepared to dishonor the man who, in the face of such obstacles, and with scarcely other resources than what he found in himself, had won an empire for Castile, such as was possessed by no European potentate. This last appeal was irresistible. However irregular had been the manner of proceeding, no one could deny the grandeur of the results. There was not a Spaniard that could be insensible to such services, or that would not have cried out shame at an ungenerous requital of them. There were three Flemings in the council, but there seems to have been no difference of opinion in the body. It was decided that neither Velasquez nor Fonseca should interfere further in the concerns of New Spain. The difficulties of the former with Cortes were regarded in the nature of a private suit, and as such redress must be sought by the regular course of law. The acts of Cortes were confirmed in their full extent. 
He was constituted governor, captain-general, and chief justice of New Spain, with power to appoint to all offices, civil and military, and to order any person to leave the country whose residence there he might deem prejudicial to the interests of the crown. This judgment of the council was ratified by Charles V, and the commission investing Cortes with these ample powers was signed by the emperor at Valladolid, 15th of October, 1522. A liberal salary was provided to enable the governor of New Spain to maintain his office with suitable dignity. The principal officers were recompensed with honors and substantial emoluments, and the troops, together with some privileges, grateful to the vanity of the soldier, received the promise of liberal grants of land. The emperor still further complimented them by a letter written to the army with his own hand, in which he acknowledged its services in the fullest manner. End of Book 7, Chapter 1 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on February 4, 2008